Good morning, everybody. Today, Baruch Hashem, we'll be learning Daf Nun in Maseches Nedarim. And welcome back, Andrew. Andrew came back from Eretz Yisrael. We missed him terribly. Um, so far, his highlights that we know included seeing Birnbaum in, up north and not taking a selfie for the Shear because he didn't believe that Birnbaum actually existed, and waving to Barry's apartment in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Uh, more details to follow. Andrew, we missed you terribly. And we starting 10 lines up from the bottom of Memtesim at Bays, which already got Andrew nice and angry. So it's good to, to talk about Rabbi Yehuda. We were saying how uh, his face used to shine. And, and certainly Andrew's face is shining from the Kedush of Eretz Yisrael. Amalei. Uh, Rebuda, in this particular part of the Gemara, was approached by three different people. This I saw a beautiful, uh, I saw this actually in the Art Scroll note, the idea about how different people, when his Rebbe, Rebbe Tarfon, uh, noticed his beautiful shining face, right? So he assumed that it was because it was the Shechina, right? And then the, this noble woman saw his face, she saw that perhaps he looked so because he was intoxicated. And now we see it's Duki sees his face and he say, say, uh, thinks a different thing. It's Duki says, Your face must only be shining because either you're lending with ribbis and you're living the good life or you're a pig farmer. So Amar Leis, Rebihuda said to him, And he said, like by the oath used among the Yehudai, interesting, right, the Jews, right, both of those Asiran, I can neither be a Malav Ribbis or Magad the Chazirin. So what is the reason? Ella, he says, Rabbi Yehuda to the Tztuki, the reason why my face is shining so, there's 24 different bathrooms between my house and the base medrash. And every hour I go to each and every one of them, and that would explain why my face is shining so. So that's what I saw in the note in the art scroll where Rehuda was actually not, uh, he, that's not really the reason why his face was shining, but he answered each of the, of the people that was asking him the question in a way that was appropriate to them. So in other words, two things. Number one, each person saw in the shine of the face of Rabbi Huda something that pertained to them. So his Rebbe knew that it was the Shechina. And this noble woman who was pampered, right, thought that it was drunk because that was her life experience. And this, right, Suduki or this uh, Russia, as we'll say, right, thought it was because it must be that he's flushed with sin, so to speak, and that that's why his face is shining. But you see how everybody reverts it back to them? It's reminiscent of the Kliyakar in... Uh, uh, that says by Esav. Esav says when he sees the the uh, the soup right before the bechor, right before he sells his bechor, he says, right? He says to Yaakov, "Give me some of that red soup." And that's why he was called Big Red Andrew. Asks the Kliyakar. That's why he was called Big Red. Are you sure? Not because he was a giant ball of red uh, his whole life from the moment of birth. This is why? So he says, no, it's because he was so self-absorbed that he only saw that which pertained to him. And so he was called Big Red because the, his redness was the only thing that mattered. So even though, as the Kliarka says, lentil soup is not the reddest thing on earth, there's things that are redder, it's not fire engine red, uh, lentil soup, but Esau saw it as in the way that it pertained to him. So similarly here, these 
three individuals saw in Rabbi Yehuda in a way that was relevant uh, to them, and he answered them accordingly. So as to his Rebbe, he answered deferentially, and right, and to the nobleman, um, noblewoman, right, he he answered as was appropriate for her, and then to this pig farmer, he answered in sort of a sharp way. Uh, but not really because he went to the bathroom every hour. Anyways, now that we mention that, the Gemara points out, Rabbi Yehuda cut Azulavei Midrasha, whenever he would go to said base Medrash, Shakil Gulfal Kasve, he would carry a big jug on his shoulders in order to sit. So, Amar Ba'aleha. This is really something that typically, even though a Talmud Chacham is not supposed to do menial labor in public, this is. A, something that is a covered because it's for him to enable himself to study. And similarly, Rabbi Shimon chuckled, son al Kasfei, Rabbi Shimon would carry a basket on his shoulders, Amar Gadol, Malachash, the same thing, in order to be able to sit on that in the base medrash. So now we're going to talk about, we're going to <coughs> expound on Rabbi Huda's extreme poverty, as we had already mentioned. And uh, here we go. Divisu de Rabbi Huda, Nafkas Naktas Amra. Rabbi Huda's wife once purchased wool. They were going to make a coat now, Andrew. Of the glima de hutve, made like a cloak from it. And when she would go out, you know, shopping, that's what she would wear this homemade cloak. Famous story of uh, Rabbi Yashiv's wife. I don't know if this is, if it's for now. During Shevabrachos, you ever hear that story? Uh, who, who was Rabbi Yashiv's father in law? This is not for now. Anyway, she, she, she sewed her own. Uh, she sewed her own Shevabrachos dress. And then, uh, and then they ended up never really making it to Shevabrachos too much because Rav Yashiv would, like, would never stop learning. That's, that's the famous story. Anyways, bottom line is she, was, she, she would wear this homemade woolen coat to, uh, or cloak to go shopping. Now, she wasn't shopping in the mall, Andrew. She wasn't in Mamila Mall. She was shopping just for, like, basics, obviously. Then, And then, whenever Behuda would go to Davin, he would wear that very same um, cloak to Davin. So, first of all, there is, right, a reference here to the idea of, um, of dressing nice for Davining, right? This was the best piece of clothing they had. And so, she would wear it to go out, and he would wear it to Davin. Okay. And this was such an unusual, right, thing for him to be able to wear this article of clothing that he would actually make a bracha, bracha Hashem, that gave me this me'il, gave me this, this cloak. Um, now we say baruch malbish arumim, but I guess for him, uh, it was specific to this cloak. That's how amazing this cloak was in the context of the rest of his belonging. Anyway, one time, whatever there was a fast, as we know, we've learned Masechus Tainus. There was a Tainus that Rabbi Shimon uh, ben Gamliel right, decreed that everybody should fast. And, and typically what they would do is they would gather in the, so to speak, town square, as it were, and fast together. So all the rabbis usually would attend, would be in attendance in, sh- in such public fasts. And Rabbi Yehuda, lo asu tanisa. They see Rabbi Yehuda's missing. So Amrin and Lay, so other people said to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, lo isle kisuya. Yeah, he's not here because he has nothing to wear. So shudder lay glima So Rabbi Shimon Gamliel went and sent him a coat and Rabbi Yehuda did not want to accept. So as we arrive at Nunamad Aleph, we say, Dali Tzipsa. What happened here? That Rabbi Yehuda lifted 
a reed and revealed something, revealed the treasure of coins. What's going on here? Well, what happened was that he he was showing, as Tosos points out, the very top Tosos, see Tosos in the margins, all the way on the left. What happened was like this. He was saying, if, if I wanted to make money, if that was my goal, I would have made money. I simply want to live a life of no hanaf from olam hazeh. And so I don't need your coat. And for whatever reason, we don't understand. Abihuda prioritized being poor over joining this communal fast, right? Because in other words, it is true that he didn't go because he didn't have anything to wear. So you say, okay, so here's something to wear. So what he did was he said, listen, if what I wanted was to make money, I have such shiata deshmaya that I could just lift up this mat and it would be a giant thing of gold coins. I would be wealthy. But that's not, right, what I'm trying to accomplish. I prefer a life of poverty. Wow. And that's what he said. says He said to the shaliach, chazi ma'ika. See? See how much money I can have if I wanted? However... I refrain from such money because I don't want to have any hana from Alam Hazeh. Okay. So now, is it, we can't talk about the Tanaim and their poverty without getting into this story that we mentioned uh, already in Maseches Shabbos and Maseches Ketubas of Rabbi Kiva and his wife. Remember Maseches Shabbos, Tafnun Test? This is the one of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. I remember when we read this last time, I bought a Yerushalayim Shel Zahav for Atara. Well, uh, this was during COVID. Um, anyway, so we go like this. Rabbi Kiva in the old house, before the remodeled house. Rabbi Kiva Yitkadashed le berete the Kalba Savua. So Rabbi Kiva married the daughter of Kalba Savua, famously. Shama Kalba Savua adra hanam Well, that's appropriate for Nadarim. Do you remember this part of the story? When Kalba Savua found out that his daughter had married the stable boy, he made a nether, as they did, uh, right, in the culture of those days. And he said, a nether that she cannot have an awe from any of his nechassim. Right, so he cut her off. Or some say sisra. Right, so she married him anyway. They eloped, Andrew. Okay, so, and their poverty was so profound that they would sleep in a straw shed, in, right, in, in, in the, meaning in the, Shed where they kept the straw, no pillows or mattress, as it were, and have a mankate lay tivna min mazya. And Rabbi Kiva, this is romantic, he would pluck straw out from her hair and tell her, If I could, I would buy you this beautiful Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, right, which would be a beautiful piece of jewelry, reminding of Yerushalayim. Beautiful idea. Did you get any jewelry for Alini on your uh, your Shalim trip, Andrew? No, I can't. Okay, not to talk. We're not going to mention. It's not not appropriate. Okay, also that's a yes, Barry. We know him long enough to know. Barry, I can tell, missed you very much. Also, Elio, Elio now became Idmi Lahonke and Nasha in the form of a of a person as he does. Because Abava, and then he's calling out to the door. He's coming, and Amar Lahu and Elio Navi says to Akiva. Do you perhaps do you have any straw, please? I don't have any straw. The My wife gave birth, and I have nothing to lay her down on, not even straw. So Wow. Look how much we have. Everything's relative, Andrew. A lot of people recommend this. Um, Tim Ferriss, I don't know why I'm mentioning him. Well, he's he has a podcast. He said he recommends going to like, you know, 
some of these impoverished city uh, places in the world where you make like where if you make five dollars a month you're you're rich and that relative uh, and, and you notice that wealth is always relative that's a very um, it's supposedly a big uh, character builder anyway this is the relative wealth that this guy didn't even have straw Rabbi Kiva saying look at that Baruch Hashem we have straw so I'm relay so she said to him Zil have a okay go steig famous story that Rabbi Kiva's wife sends him to learn so Azal Tarte Shnin Kamei the Rabbi Lezer Yeshua and he learned by Rabbi Lezer Rabbi Yeshua as Rabbeim for 12 years Lemishlam Tarte Shnin at the conclusion of those 12 years Kos Levese he's coming home Shmami Nachor and he hears behind his house people talking Karmel Echad Rasha Ledivisu interesting a Rasha is speaking with his wife and saying Shapi Ovid Lechavuch your father did a good thing by cutting you off first of all he wasn't really for you okay because he wasn't good enough Meaning Rabbi Kiva, right? Oh, high school and And look, he's leaving you here in Almana, a widow for twelve years, like you're alone. So he wasn't good enough for you to begin with, and now you're on your own. So Armalei, she answered this Russia. If he would listen to me, I would let him go for another twelve years. So Amar Rabbi Kiva then said to himself, obviously Oh, that sounds like she wants me to go back for twelve years. I'm going to go back, and sure enough, he did. Hadar Azal goes back for twelve years. And there was another 12 years in the yeshiva. Why did he not stop? Why didn't he say hello? And like, did, he, did she even know that he was still alive? He was supposed to come for 12 years? Right, so that's... And right, and when did he have kids? Didn't he get married when he was 40 years old? And then he's going to be away for 24 years? What, what's going on, Andrew? All right, you want to go with the Sichus Musser? I don't know. I mean, uh, the Sichus Musser uh, says, ah, you can't, you can't compare 12 years and another 12 years with a hello in between to uninterrupted 12 years. 12 plus 12 is not 24, Barry. Okay. There's another, there's Chaim Shmulevitz who was all over this story. There's another part here, you'll see. And then, so after the, another 12 years, so now for 24 years, he got 1,000 Talmidim for each year. 24,000 Talmidim, he's coming back. Literally the whole world, or figuratively the whole world, goes to see him. And included in that whole world was his wife to come greet her husband after 24 years. Here he is, same Russia. Where are you going? Where do you think you're going? She says to him, in other words, he's saying, where do you think you're going in those tattered clothes? This is the big gadol coming back. It, it, it seems that not everybody knew that it was Rabbi Kiva, as we'll see. Certainly, Rachel, Rachel, as Akiva's wife's name was, her father, Kala Savua, certainly did not know um, that it was Rabbi Akiva. That, that we see uh, in the other places, in Ksubis Samach Gimel, where this story is recorded. Uh, be that as it may... She knew it was him. So I'm relay. It's quite significant that the students that he had for who he was, yeah. their immediate reaction to an honey and a woman would be to push her away. Oh, well, yeah. Andrew's pointing out something very interesting as follows. You know what happens to these Exactly, students. exactly. So we know what happened to these 20... Andrew's pointing out. We know what happened to these 24,000 students that he lost them all and we, and we get to not shave, right, during the Sphira because of the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva. And everybody asks, well, what did the Talmudim of Rabbi Kiva do? So they say, oh, we see that there's some aggression here already in this story as follows. 
She says, first of all, they said, where are you going? You're wearing your tattered clothes. She says an unbelievable thing. Amazing. Means a tzaddik knows his behem, can even knows the soul of his behema or his dog or whatever. What she means is that he knows what's in my heart. He doesn't care how I'm dressed. He knows what's in my heart. Beautiful idea, and the humility to to compare herself to you know to behema. She what he basically is saying is you know we are bound by something deeper than what I'm wearing. Anyway, so now she wants to get a glimpse of her. Returning husband, Kamar Chalan This is what Andrew points out. The Talmud of Rabbi Kiva are pushing her away. They say, here's the big gadol. Here's the big gadol. They push this woman away. They don't know who she is. And, but anyway, even if you don't know who she is, you don't push somebody, says Andrew. And I agree with that. Anyway, I'm alone. Rabbi Kiva says to them, Hanichula, let her be. He recognizes her. What I've learned and what you've learned, all of our Torah is really attributed to her. It was all her idea. It was all her mysterious nefesh which enabled it, an unbelievable thing. Now, you might recall there is an Adarim element to the story, right? Because Kabbasavua was Nodar all of his possessions, right, from his daughter. So Shama Kabbasavua, he heard that a big gadol is coming to town. So again, the Gemara in Ksubis points out that he didn't go to Rabbi Kiva to apologize or anything like that. He didn't realize that this was his son-in-law. He just, as we know, if you can't get the bezin together, you, you should go to the gadol, Hadar, and he can get you out of your netter. He was trying to get himself out of the netter. Why now? Well, Barry, 24 years, his daughter is living in abject poverty, and it's enough already, right? He made his point, but he was no there enough from her, but he wants to support her. She's got nothing, Barry. So, the ishtar ishtar. So, Rabbi Kiva was Matir's netter. Now, it, you have to ask, and that, since we're learning Nadarim, how, first of all, how could Rabbi Kiva be Mater's nether? He's no Gabadover, right? He was going to be the one that was going to benefit from this. He's the son in law, after all. This is the Shvet. That's number one. And number two, there is a concept of Nolad. We're learning Nadarim. So when it comes to Nadarim, you say, the real question when you're making a nether, how do you normally get out of it? You said, had you known this when you made, <laughs> had you known this when you made the nether, would you have made the nether? But how could Kalabasavu have known what Rabbi Kiva was going to be? That was something that only happened subsequent to his nether. Elamai, you have to say, so as far as being no Gabadavar, some say that maybe Rabbi Kiva got, like, just he came up with a way of getting him out of his nether, but he got a bunch of rabbis or his Talmudim. You just got to make a Bezdin right there and have them get him out of it. That's one thing. And as far as this Nolad issue, so you could say, oh, you know what? Maybe he hadn't been a Tamachacham yet, but he had such tremendous potential. It was, in fact, that which Rachel saw in him. That maybe had he known that Rabbi Kiva had the potential to be this, uh, <coughs> he would have not uh, made such a net. Be that as it may, Rabbi, Lezer, uh, Rabbi Akiva gets him out of the net there, right? Ishtare, Ishtare. And then, Minshis Mila Yata Rabbi Akiva. Okay, and that's the end of the story. Now, we have six, we have source of six. Ways in which Rabbi Kiva became wealthy subsequent to this. So he started out his life in abject poverty. He ended up actually quite a wealthy man from six sources. One, Min Kalba Savua, right, his father in law, as discussed. In the Gemara Subis, it points out that subsequent to the story, he gave him half of his, once he realized who it was, he gave him half of his possessions. So right away, Kalba Savua was a very wealthy man that made Rabbi Kiva wealthy as well. The second story is Min Ayala Desfinasa, from the head of a heart on a ship, like a, 
heart like a deer, not, not H-E-A-R-T, H-A-R-T. What's going on? They used to have, every ship would have this kind of semblance of an animal, um, uh, and, it was, and it was this thing that would, um, they, would keep, they would keep money there, okay? And they thought it had some sort of utility. And one day they forgot it, Right, this thing where they kept all their money on the seashore as they were leaving. And also, Rekiva came, he found it. Now, they were not Jewish. He had no real chiv of Hashavah Saveda, but he was an honest man. So he told them that he found it, and they were so impressed, as the Gemara explains, as the Shittim Kabbalah explains, they were so impressed that they let him keep it. Amazing. Okay, that was the second source of his wealth. The third source, Mingavza. A treasure chest. How do you get a treasure chest? The Zimnachad Yavar Bazuzul Sapunai. And we gave, we gave four Zuzim to some sailors. And Amr Lahu, he said to them, Isili Madam, bring me something in exchange for this money. Just give me something nice for this four Zuz. Okay. And they found what they thought was an empty chest on the seashore. They didn't bother to open it up. Asulay, and they gave it to him. Amulay, and they said to him, Abin Marana Alay, maybe you could make some use of this empty chest. Sure, he takes it home. He opens the chest, which they, for whatever reason, didn't do. Filled with gold. They found the treasure chest that every sailor looks for. They just didn't bother to open it up. They thought it was empty. It was heavy, whatever. Okay. How did it become filled with gold, Andrew? Yeah, it happened to be that once a ship belonging to the Arabian trade, uh, you know, Tradesmen sank. And they had all of their belongings in there, all their profits, the entire thing, all the money. And it was lost, and then it was only found until this point. So that's how it ended up filled with gold. You see the Siata de Shmaya that he had for his Messir Snefesh. Okay, that was source number three of his wealth. We have three more to go, halfway there. I mean, Matru Nisa. There was a noble woman, a story of a noble woman. There's. Uh, there's some controversy as to whether this was the same wife of Tinius Rufus or not. Be that as it may, a whole story about the noblewoman, right, that um, he ended up, so some say this is the noblewoman that he ended up uh, uh, marrying. Is this the same, right? Umin Matronisa, a noblewoman. Umin Ishtashel Turnus Rufus. So those are two different stories, right? So... The noblewoman had to do with this woman who lent him money. Do you know this story? This story is in the Ran. What was happened with the noblewoman? The Matronisa said, Rabbi Kiva needs money for the yeshiva. You ever, you ever get approached by anybody who needs money for the yeshiva? So he borrowed money for the yeshiva, and the woman said, let, the, let Hashem and let the sea be uh, who returns the, sea, uh, the guarantors, the orev, as it were, for this money. Uh, at the time that Rekiva was supposed to pay the money, he fell ill. Okay. So she goes to the sea and to Hashem. She said, you are the guarantors. Sure enough, all the money washes up. A whole bunch of coins from some other shipwreck wash up and Hashem and the sea, so to speak, pay her back. And then some. So Rekiva gets better. He goes to return the money that he borrowed, as one does. And she says, no, don't worry. Hashem already paid me back. And here, there's also the change. So keep your money and here's the change. Keep the change. And so he got wealthy from that. That was the Matronisa. Then the fourth is the, uh, uh, the fifth rather is Ishtar Shilturnus Rufus. Now that's the controversial one. Is the same one, was the one Rabbi Kiva married? 
There was a story that there was a woman, right, where he would have all of these arguments with Turnus Rufus, and, um, right, and, and he used to have a whole bunch of debates with him. You know, this harkens to the, uh, the Rashba's debates in Barcelona, be that as it may, right, or the Ramban, right, the famous polemics. Anyway, olden times, Tanaic times, Turnus Rufus and Rabbi Kiva would always have these, you know, scriptural debates, and, and uh, Rabbi Kiva would always wipe the floor with him. He would wipe the floor with him. So one day, this is all quoted over here in the art scroll, that one day Turnus Rufus comes home in a foul mood, Barry, because he gets, he gets his uh, lunch handed to him every day by Rabbi Kiva, right? He's making mincemeat out of him out there. And so he's in a rotten mood. His wife says, I have a good idea. You know what the, you know what the children of, uh, you know what all the Goyim used to always do in order to get Kali Yisrael in trouble? They seduce them with Arias. So she gets off a pit, Andrew, and she's trying to seduce Rabbi Kiva. And in that story, what happened was Rabbi Kiva, when he saw her, he spat, he cried, and he laughed. She said, what, what, what is this? What kind of reaction is this to me trying to seduce you? So he explained to her that he spat because he was so disgusted because upon seeing her beauty, he understood that just, still she comes, right, at, at the end of the day, right? Um, uh, da, you know, there's three things a person should, should know, where you came from, where you're going, right, and, and who, and, and Avinu Shabbat that exists. So he thought about where she came from and he was disgusted, so he spat. He thought about where she's going, and that was sad, so he cried, because after all, such beauty should go away and be, become dust. And he laughed because he actually saw with Ruach HaKodesh that eventually he was going to marry her. Uh, interesting. So that leads to another question, Andrew. Uh, what happened to Rachel? That, that wife seemed like she was pretty solid. Anyway, second wife? Okay. Anyway, she asked, is there any tshuva for me? She converted. Eventually they married. What is, and then when he married her, that obviously made him even more wealthy. So that's the story of Ishtar Shaltunus Rufus. Uh, Ayin Shum, right? A lot more there where that came from, I suppose. I mean, Katia Bar Shalom. Andrew, who's Katia Bar Shalom? So, like this, a wild story. Um, well, Katia Bar Shalom was this Roman nobleman. Okay, this, this, is all, this is all from Avodah Zarah, where Ketir Bashalom, why was it called Ketir Bashalom? A wild, wild story. Uh, the Caesar, the, the uh, Ketir Bashalom said, right, like this, the Caesar wanted, he was anti-Semitic, he wanted to kill the Jews. So he compared the Jews to gangrene, Barry. When a um, limb gets gangrenous, he, you have to cut it off in order to save, right, the rest of the body, right, because it's just going to infect the rest of the body, Rahman al-Islam. So he compared Kal Yisrael, which was part of the Greek kingdom, to a gangrenous limb. He said, shouldn't I cut it off? And Ketir Bar Shalom, whose name must be coincidental, because it sounds like cutting off and causing peace, he was this non-Jew in the Senate, as it were, that recommended don't kill Kal Yisrael. And he gave a reason why not to. Okay, without getting into the whole story, the Caesar was bested by Ketir Bar Shalom, but... There's a price, Barry. When you're bested by, by somebody and you're the Caesar, that person uh, loses their life. Actually, they're buried alive. So they're taking him out to be buried alive, and he does something quite dramatic, 
Because somebody yells out, he's like, you saved the Jews and you're not even one of them. Why would you even do that, right? And so he uh, committed himself to Judaism and did a weird kind of conversion where he performed a bris meal on himself with his teeth, which I don't know how that's even done. Be that as it may, he was able to do so and so he died essentially al-Kiddush Hashem. And just before they buried him alive, he, he exclaimed that all of his possessions, this is all in Avodah Zarah, we'll get there, Bezrat Hashem, Daf Yud, he, 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 he um, dedicated all of his possessions to Rabbi Kiva. And he's, you know, like a Shchiv as it were, he gave the Matana uh, to Rabbi Kiva. And that was the sixth way burying uh, that Rabbi Kiva got the money. So six different sources of how he became wealthy. Be that as it may, um, Rav Gamda once gave four Zuzim to say, just like Rabbi Kiva had, he says, get me something nice. They didn't find anything good. So they bought him a kof, a monkey. They brought back a monkey. And the monkey now is running around. What kind of gift is this? He can't, the monkey disappears, runs away. So they chased the monkey into a hole. They dig after the monkey. Sure enough, it's like Aladdin, Lahavdil, or maybe not Lahavdil. He's scratching. He's he's in a, he's in a cave of pearls and all kinds of things, and they find all the jewels there. and they bought. And what happened? The sailors brought all the pearls to Rav Gabda, and they said, uh, "This is all belonging to you now." As, as the Gemara says there, uh, in in uh, in Kiddushin, that majority of sailors in those days were tzaddikim, and so they were certainly of. High integrity. Okay. Six lines down on Nunam and Bez. Now, let's talk about uh, more. You want to hear about more Tanaim and Roman noblemen? That's always fun. Amalei bas Kesel Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya. Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya was, was the great Tana Rabbi Yeshua. The teacher, the aforementioned, the aforementioned Rabbi of Rabbi Kiva. He was known for being extremely gentle and amazingly brilliant and humble, as you remember the story with him. Uh, coming on on the uh, Yom Kippur, right on his own Yom Kippur with the makel in hand. Okay, so the great Rabbi Yeshua, the great great humble tzaddik Rabbi Yeshua, was also known for not being good looking. So, the this was not lost on the daughter of the Caesar. Of course, the daughter of the Caesar is always looking at externals, and she says to Rabbi Yeshua ben Chananya, "Wow, such a beautiful Torah." And uh, to, I'm sorry, Torah mifo'ara b'chli mecho'ar. Such beautiful Torah and such an ugly vessel, referring to Rabbi Yeshua. So Amalah, limdi mi beis avuch. You should know already from your father's house. What do you put wine in? Amalah b'mane d'fachra. Yeah, we put it in earthenware. So Amalah, kulay amal fachra v'elsen b'mane d'fachra. What, you putting in earthenware like everybody else in the world? That's beneath you. Put the, put the wine in gold and silver. She said, that's a good point. Why am I putting in this earthenware like a peasant? I should be putting my, go- my wine in gold and silver. Sure enough, sorry, it's soured. Uh, because that's not a good right preservative at all. That, so, Amar Allah, such is the Torah. It is best preserved in those who are not good looking. So she said, however, but I see some very, very handsome tell me the Chachamim. So to which Rabbi Shur responded in a quintessential Jewish way, yeah, they're big Tamiya Chachamim or good looking. Imagine how much bigger Tamiya Chachamim they were if they were ugly. See? Okay. So, he, so another story involving a 
unattractive Tamakakam. Aida Asu the Kameda Vihuda Minahardah Ladina. Okay, a certain woman is coming to Arda to Rabbi Yehuda for for din. And it turns out in this Bezdin she was Chayev. So as uh, litigants typically react to not winning a court case, Amalei, she was dissatisfied and she said to Rabbi Yehuda, Shmuel Rabach, Hachidanan, do you think your Rabbi Shmuel would have passed this way? Okay, so Amalei, he says to her, Yadadle, well, you knew Shmuel? That you can make such a statement? So Amalei, and yes, I knew him. Guts of a rabbi, crazy, ukus rabbishine. Yeah, I know him. That short, pot belly, dark skin, long tooth dude. So Amalei, so Rabbi Yehuda said to her, Levazuye causes? What are you, making some sort of bizarre here? Anyway, he he put him her in Cherim and Pakova Mesa. And she never made it to Cherim, she burst and died on the spot. This is, uh, should be a cautionary tale, Barry, for anybody who wants to speak uh, in this fashion of great men, a great Tamir Chachanim. Okay? So now we're in the two dots in the middle of Nunan Bays. And we're back to the Mishnah. What was the Mishnah about, Andrew? You may have forgotten. I know there are Mavusho. If you make a neder that you can't have cooked foods, what does that include? What does it not include? So, termita. So, if he said that I can't have cooked food, it, he's still allowed to eat a termita egg. What is a termita egg? The ultimate body scan. You know about these body scans, Andrew, where they check you and they make sure that you have, don't have any maladies and you can tell, they can tell everything and they fix you up? They had it in those days, Barry, the Trumisa egg. How was it prepared? Uh, it's a big, big pachki, as follows. My base of Trumisa, what's the base of Trumita? Amr Shmuel, Avda de Avid Shavi Alpha Dinar. You get a slave and you can prepare properly. It's worth a, th- a thousand gold dinar. Not unlike the thousand dollar sandwich in the five towns. Umayil ale alpha zimni bimaya chamime. So this is why it's so expensive. The one in the five towns, I think, has, I was told, gold flakes in it. Anyway. Maile Alpha is for no reason, because you're eating it, Barry. All right, it doesn't matter. He puts the egg a thousand times in hot water, the Alpha and a thousand times in cold water. So this is a lot of prep. And it's shrunk to the point where you could swallow it whole without chewing. That's very important for this procedure. And if there's any um, disease in your body, it forms a residue on the egg. So there's a lot of skill in making this egg, and then you have to know how to read the egg because the person swallows it and then passes it. And then you, exe- you swallow the egg whole with the shell, Andrew, and then you pass it, and then this expert examines it, and he can tell everything that's going on inside you. It's cool, right? Okay. Right? When you pass the egg, you know everything that's going on with you physically, and what therapy to use? Unbelievable. Now, this isn't food, right? This is why, even though it's cooked a thousand times, that's not included in your nether. That's what this is doing here. Be that as it may, Shmuel have a badik Shmuel had a different examination that you would do. He would use uh, a kulcha, which is like some sort of cabbage or something. I think the kulcha may have been cheaper, but it was a much more excruciatingly painful. Uh, procedure, so, so much so that um, the women in his household, like his wife, would start unbraiding her hair, like preparing for his levaya. That's how bad it was when he was doing it. But he did it. That was like his annual checkup. And he used to survive and return back to the land of the living and then know whatever he needed to do for his health. Very interesting. Anyway, 
So let's talk about Mishnah and Maestros, talking about the, the specialized expertise of certain uh, Avadim, just like they had the expertise of making the Tormita egg. <coughs> There's other expertise as well, like this. It's not Haslam over there in Maestros. I also Bichlufsin. Okay? If you have a field worker working with Klufsin, uh, which is a type of fig, Lo Yochal Sheva, you shouldn't eat the Bnos Sheva figs, and Bnos Sheva, Lo Klufsin. And vice versa, right? If you're working with Bnos Sheva figs, don't eat Klufsin figs. Why? My Klufsin, what is this? So the Gemara explains, Mina Tatane, it's a type of fig. The Avdiminhun Lapte, right? From which you make certain fig dishes. Okay? So don't mix. The, never the twain shall meet. Don't make these two types of figs together. Story time. Who gabbard? You have the after the chavre. A certain person sent his friend. Uh, he had a, a slave who's expert at figs, a fig cooking expert slave. Okay, and so he sent him. So he was commissioned, right? So like Barry has a slave that knows how to make all the fig dishes you could ever want. Andrew is hungry. Came back from Israel. And he wants to experience the figs of Baltimore again. So he pays Barry to rent his Barry's slave in order to teach him or to teach Laney, as it were, how to make all these fig dishes. Okay. So he is commissioning him like Mure Alpha Mine Lafte. He wants to he wants Laney to learn a thousand different varieties of cooked fig dishes. However, Barry's slave does not he overpromises and underdelivers. Instead of a thousand dishes, he only teaches eight hundred to Andrew's wife. Oh, here we go again. Andrew takes Barry to court. Would you guys knock it off? We have to mend this. Anyway, so he he takes him to court for failing him to teach right a full thousand varieties, only eight hundred. So I'm a Rebbe. So Rebbe is the judge here, and he said, "This is what they say." Right, in Eicha it says, that we forgot luxury. And he says, Well, we never even witnessed luxury in the first place. In other words, right, he couldn't believe, right, the court, com- the court case comes to, to Rebbe, and Rebbe says he, he was one of the wealthiest men, uh, men in the generation, and he never saw such, such stults. He was astonished by, by, your, by your stultzy attitude, Andrew. Like, he couldn't believe, like, you're going to take Barry to court because you only learned 800 fig dishes? That wasn't enough for you. You need a full thousand. That's what you're bringing him to court for. He couldn't believe the Pesach programs and the charcuterie boards. He was absolutely disgusted by the uh, conspicuous consumption. Anyway, Rabbi Rabbi. so now that we're mentioning the conspicuous consumption in Rebbe's generation... We're going to tell a story about it. Rebbe made a chasana. The aforementioned very wealthy Rebbe made a chasana. So what happened here? Uh, a lot of this, the Mefarish brings out that, uh, as you'll see, Bar Kapara wasn't invited. Bar Kapara was not invited to this wedding. So Bar Kapara writes in graffiti on the wedding hall, about Rebbe, he says he had, he spent two hundred forty million dinarim on this wedding, and he didn't have enough money to, 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 for one more invitation to, to to invite me to give me a plate. So Amarle, so Bar Kapara then says to Rebbe, "Im He says this incredible wealth is for those who right are over the Ratzon Hashem. 
So it should be, right, even, so, so in other words, you should also be more so for those who do follow the Ratzon Hashem. In other words, he's telling Rebbe, you should have invited me. That's what he's telling Rebbe. This is his way of saying, different, Mepharshim explained his different ways. The Chassam Sofer, uh, quoted in the art school, says it in a beautiful way. He says, don't be so serious. The Chassam Sofer has a whole mahalach in this Gemara that basically he paints a dynamic, a psychological study, if you will, or a study of personality. Rebbe was very serious. Bar Kapara was a clown. Rebbe knew that if he invites Bar Kapara, the whole complexion of the party changes. Now, Bar Kapara is like, the is, is a, and he's joking around, and everything becomes less serious, and that's why he didn't invite him. But Bar Kapara says, no, you should even invite me. So Azmi, Rebbe says, fine, fine, come in. So Amar Bar Kapara says to this response, <laughs> he blesses him. This is the, the lot of those who do his will. You should be zaychit to an amazing olam haba. Okay? Fine. So now let's talk a little bit more about this dynamic between Rebbe Bar Kapara. Again, fascinating. Think of Rebbe as the very serious, uh, austere Rav that never laughs. And Bar Kapara is the jokester. Yomad b'chayach be Rebbe. Any day that Rebbe would laugh, asi peranas olam. He was so responsible for the klal that whenever he would laugh, right, it would be like he's taking lightly all of the problems of Klal Yisrael and, mis- and more misfortune would befall the world. So So that's why Rebbe said to Bar Kapara, stop making me laugh. I'll pay you, some people pay for comedians to make them laugh. He said, I'll pay you 40 measures a week to not make me laugh. Just leave me alone, I can't laugh. He said, noted. Here's what I'll do. The whole as we turn to Nun Alpha Mdalf, the whole griva divaina shaklina. I'll take a large measure as I wish. In other words, I'm not gonna make you laugh here. Give me the money. Shakal de Kuli Rabba, he takes a large basket, Khafi Kufra, and he and he uh, coats it with pitch, Vasakhvel Reshe, and he turns the basket upside down his head. So now he's standing there. The Azov Amarlay Lechulimara Ban Grave is a hit of So he takes his basket, turns it on his head, and he said, Here, give me the money. So now he looks ridiculous, Bar He's got this lampshade on his head, and he's quite a sight, and that actually made Rebbe laugh. So Achuch Rebbe, so Rebbe starts cracking up. Look at this ridiculous vision of this guy. Amrlei, Rebbe says to him, Didn't I tell you not to make me laugh? So Amrlei, Bar said to him, All I'm trying to do is take the wheat. <laughs> he wasn't trying to make him laugh, but he was silly, Andrew. He was this guy that no matter what, you know, you, you see these guys, they walk into the room, everybody cracks up. But the an incredible idea that Barkapara and Rabbi Kiva, you know, we have uh, humor in the Torah is a fascinating question, but sometimes when the Gedolim have to have the weight of the problems of Klal Yisrael on them, they don't have the luxury of laughing. We'll continue Bezat Shem tomorrow, five lines down from the top of Nun Aleph, Ahmed Aleph.